Hi, this is your host, Pete Bloom. Welcome to American Heroes Network. Our core mission is serving the brave men and women who have sacrificed to ensure our freedom. You will hear true stories from those that have served, learn about veteran organizations and resources, and gain hope for your future knowing American Heroes Network, your community, and other veterans are here and at the ready to serve and help you and your family. We will talk about the hard topics like PTSD and TBI. You will also hear military history, inspirational stories, learn about networking with the community, and more. So come join us and be part of our family. Today's guest is a Marine Corps combat veteran that has dealt with TBI and PTSD, so he understands the physical and mental challenges that other veterans have been through. He's the co-founder of Operation Art of Valor, helping other veterans heal, and I would like to welcome Chris Stowe. Chris, thank you for serving, and how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, Pete. Thanks very much for having me on. Hope you're doing well today, too. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, for sure. So what was life like in the military for you, Chris? Uh, so it was fantastic, actually. So I joined um, like a lot of Midwesterner kids did out of Ohio that didn't have much options. You know, I joined right out of high school. I spent 24 years in the Marine Corps, first starting in open contract as a graphics designer and then volunteering for Explosive Ordnance Disposal or EOD, um, probably when I was on my second enlistment in like 96 or 97. And then I did that for the remainder of my career until I retired in 2016. A lot of people hear Explosive Ordnance Disposal. Sure. Uh, don't know a lot about it. So can you tell me more about what being an explosive ordnance disposal technician is? Like, what do you do? How do you do it? Absolutely. So happy to. So I always joke and say it's everything from cannonballs to nuclear weapons, right? <laughs> so um, we are charged with being able to understand how to render safe, remove anything from conventional military weapons that are dropped, fired, unexploded ordnance, all the way up to improvised explosive devices, which is where I think my field probably got its uh, claim to fame post 9-11. So we ended up almost quadrupling our manpower size in the Marine Corps for um, EOD technicians from 9-11 forward. And then I went from being a, going on a Marine Expeditionary Unit deployments where we did a lot of humanitarian assistance type missions and non-combat missions to I did, you know, six back-to-back combat deployments, like in a 10-year you know, time span, going on the side of the road and rendering safe, you know, improvised explosive devices in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, I saw, you know, being deployed six times, spending time in Iraq and Afghanistan and other locations. Um, having to do your job and dispose of things. I mean, what kind of things have you had to dispose of and have you had to do that while you're under fire? Sure. So that's a great question. So all of it's yes. <laughs> so we've done everything from, I've seen improvised devices where they used military ordnance, and then they would uh, turn that into a, you know, a bomb under the road, had to um, hand remove explosives that were on a bridge to keep a bridge from collapsing. I did that in Iraq. And then we had everything from jugs that were filled with improvised homemade explosive in Afghanistan with like, um, cause a lot of that was foot patrol. So a lot of that was in the, the really fine dust. And then there would be uh, like a small a pressure plate that, you know, if somebody was on dismounted patrol, they would step on. So I've done that to, uh, I've seen everything from, uh, I've seen a water heater that was full of explosives it was under the ground, it had about 300 pounds of explosives in it. And then we've also been taking care of like, literally probably a ton of captured enemy ammunition, especially in Iraq when they raided the ammunition dumps in the early part of the war. And they used those conventional munitions for their main charges. And my biggest one probably in Iraq that we got rid of was about 10,000 pounds of captured enemy ammunitions. Wow, that's really crazy. I would think that a lot of jobs in the military are obviously stressful. You know, you're a pilot, you know, infantry, but your job particularly has got to be one of the most dangerous jobs because of the devastating impact that it can have if something goes off while you guys are trying to move it, handle it or whatever. So man, you got to be able to deal with pressure really well. 
Yeah. So I think that just ends up being a byproduct of the job, right? You mentioned earlier about being under fire. That's probably one of the most interesting things to ever do because you have to, I say interesting, because it's interesting in retrospect, because you have to kind of be diligent and kind of slow and methodical sometimes when it comes to removing the components that we needed to, to keep these devices from exploding. But you're doing it while people are trying to shoot at you. So we ended up, I think, just by design, meaning EOD folks, becoming just natural targets for the insurgency, uh, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, just because we were taking out one of their main area denial weapons. So we were a target more often than we weren't. So when you transitioned from the military, was that like easy or hard for you? So it's funny. I retired almost three years ago, and I would say that it was unequivocally probably one of the most difficult things I've done. I was fortunate in that the year before I retired or two years before I retired, I was a congressional fellow on the Hill. So I spent a year in a suit rather than being in my uniform working for uh, chairman for the Veterans Affairs Committee. So we lived in a community. It's also the first time that me and my family hadn't lived on base since I'd been in. So we were with you know, non-military folks and all that kind of stuff. So it ended up being kind of a, a bridge, I guess, before I just you know cold retired and left the military community. That was good. The interesting part was I'd spent 24 years in uniform in a pretty dynamic job, you know, pretty dynamic job field. And then I was downshifting, I think, several gears into uh, real life, right? So civilian life. And people that couldn't necessarily identify with what my experience had been to that point. And it was pretty alienating, to be honest. Working at the House Committee for Veteran Affairs, was that kind of like your first step in helping veterans in a whole new way? Absolutely. And it actually, Pete, is what the impetus for actually me even going on that fellowship or applying for that fellowship was if we go back to 2011, 2012, and I was a platoon sergeant for uh, our EOD rotation that was in Afghanistan. And I ended up having like seven EOD technicians end up with amputations. About seven of them. I had two guys get KA on that deployment. And then when we came back and all the issues that some of those guys were having as they were moving through the medical retirement system, you know, both on the DOD side and then while they were trying to get claims and things taken care of on the VA side. So I ended up trying to help them just from my side. <laughs> so then, you know, one evening, I don't know whether it was by design or, you know, fate intervened or whatever, I ended up writing an open letter to the Veterans Affairs Committee and then posting it on their Facebook page. You know, one of those like, if you got a problem, identify it and then also provide a solution like they teach the military, right? So I laid out a very long kind of process that I thought they needed to do for the integrated disability evaluation system, which is the military and DOD vehicle that they use to medically separate and medically retire folks. It was a very laborious system. Um, a lot of places where people could get caught up in the system and delayed. So I'd given a couple of ideas on their Facebook page. Invariably, I had a friend of mine send me a link to the Congressional Fellowship Program and more or less charged me with, hey, if you want to do something about it, then here's how you do something about it. So that's what I did. So I applied and started doing that fellowship program. I'm working on VA legislation and DOD legislation for integrated disability evaluation system. And then from there, did my last two years working for Special Operations Command, running their Wounded Warrior Program out of Walter Reed. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's really something that I think is making a huge impact too. You started at the House Committee, then you took it to that next step, and then it sounds like you just went full throttle. So tell me about the Morian Arts Education Center, the Hot Glass Studio, and the creation of Operation Art of Valor. Sure. Happy to. So it was a personal journey for me first. So I was in the process of retiring. I was working for Special Operations Command at the time up in Walter Reed. And one of the things that I did while I was there is I set up fellowships and internships for um, wounded folks that were going through their medical separation or medical retirement. So we would try to partner with companies and businesses and things like that and set up small internships that they could hopefully parlay into employment, right? So what I wanted to do is I was trying to get things that were outside of the Department of Defense. I was trying to broaden, you know, be able to give opportunities that could broaden people's horizons other than, you know, if I was an infantry guy going back into an, you know, an infantry fellowship or if I was an aviator going into like a, you know, a defense industry type fellowship. 
So I set up one with a Clearwater Marine Aquarium in Clearwater, Florida to work in their dive center to help learn how to manage an aquarium. So I set that up through a number of months with their leadership and they approved it. So I actually went down to vet it. So I was actually down for about three months in Clearwater and I was doing an internship running their dive shop, running their dive operations, cleaning tanks, checking dolphins and things like that. And while I was there, well, and this will actually need to go back to go forward to tell you. So my family and I are huge Disney folks. Um, We go to Disney as often as we can. And so there's a place in downtown Disney, which is called Disney Springs now, that was called Erebus Brothers. And it was a glass studio, a small glass shop. So you could buy little goofy figurines that were made out of glass and you could buy, you know, large castles that were made out of glass. You could buy just about anything, right? So I'd always joke when we would go there because there was a guy that would do demonstrations and he'd be sitting there making like a dragon or he'd be making whatever. And I always joked and said that was going to be my retirement plan. I was going to retire and I was going to make glass Donald Ducks. You know, I mean, <laughs> I'd, I'd sit it for years before I even retired. It was like a running family joke. So fast forward back to when I'm doing this internship in Clearwater. You know, my morning is pretty filled with morning stuff at the aquarium. And then my evening is set with evening things to do in the aquarium. But my day was pretty much open. My family was still up in Virginia. And that's where we lived at the time because the school year was still going. So my kids were in school. My wife was taking care of that. And uh, I just happened to wander into a glass blowing studio one day because it's one of those things that I always kind of wanted to do, but never knew how to go about it. So walked into a glass blowing studio, started talking to the folks and then decided I wanted to try to do classes while I was down on the internship. So that's kind of interesting too, because it was probably about $2,000 to take a dedicated glass blowing class, right? So that's a lot of money. And I've got a little bit of experience with finding benevolent organizations that have an interest in, in helping folks um, do things. So actually give credit to the boot campaign. It's a nonprofit military program out of Texas. And I applied for an arts therapy grant through their nonprofit. And they actually funded me going through that course. So for 13 weeks while I was there, I learned how to blow glass. And it was just an organic conversation probably with the glass blower that was there at the shop. And just the immediate benefits that I was getting from the program, it was just a connection. It was like, it just turned on, like this would be phenomenal for folks to do. I put a pause there if you don't mind, because I want to tell you. So when I was on the Hill and in Capitol Hill in 2013, and I was dealing with the stuff that I was dealing with, I had an opportunity or I got referred and ended up being an opportunity to go through the National Intrepid Center of Excellence there at Walter Reed and actually go through their full 30-day program for mental and physical health and all that kind of stuff. And when I was there, a large component of that program is art and music therapy. And that's where I even got the whole kind of spark to do this. So the woman there, Melissa Walker, who's the head of creative arts therapist there at Walter Reed, sat me down and said, hey, what do you want to do? She's done TED Med talks. She's uh, been a National Geographic for the masks program that she makes for those folks. And that was one of the first things I did. And I said, well, I want to learn how to oil paint. So I do. I oil paint now too. And left there also learn how to play the ukulele from the music therapist that's there. But I always knew I wanted to translate that kind of into glass. So that was the start. And then I got down to do the internship. And then I learned the glass blowing. And then from there, we started really small. We started with just trying to get classes that were no cost. So St. Peter's, they call it the glass coast, right? So there's several glass blowing studios in the area and it ended up being a little bit of Goldilocks. I had to find the fit. The first studio was maybe too small. And then the next studio was too large. They were looking for more from immediate financial, I think, return on that kind of stuff, which I don't have money to give back. So I finally partnered with a hundred year old community arts education center, the Morian Arts Center. They literally, that's what they're charged to do is to provide classes to the community. And I reached out to the executive director when I was on a veteran board for the Florida Culture Affairs Division, we were setting up our Creative Arts Therapy Symposium through the National Endowment of the Arts Creative Forces Program here in Florida and Tampa. At that three-day symposium, that's where I met you know, the executive director of the Morian and gave him a really quick elevator speech about how you know, you've got a, a population, an underserved portion of your population, your community, it's the veteran community. And probably within 10 minutes of talking with them, we had a wire diagram in place of how we were going to do this and that was going to be funded. And we kind of went from there. 
Wow, that's absolutely amazing. You've really done so many different things. And it's really funny because it's like the painting, writing, know how to do glass blowing. It's got the multi-talented there, right? <laughs> yeah, so it's funny, right? Because it's one of the things that you never really realize. I think probably the time I spent in the Marine Corps and on the bomb squad and stuff, you don't necessarily think that you're creative. You know, it's a process, right? So you're more process oriented. And then I went through NICO and, and learned, I mean, those four paintings back there on the wall, the first four paintings that I did in the program, I did them actually with Melissa during the program. It just, it opened up something that I hadn't really felt was there before, but I knew I didn't want to extinguish it. I wanted to keep going. I'm with it. And so when I started taking glass blowing classes, I think one of the things that I immediately realized is that it felt more like a craft versus an art. So it's heavy, it's visceral, it's loud, and obviously it's hot. So I thought it might be a good jumping off point for folks that maybe would bristle at doing art therapy or doing anything creative, you know, like getting a big bad Navy SEAL to sit down and do watercolor painting or to get, you know, a, a Green Beret to sit down and do macrame or whatever, you know. This seemed more of like a craft, like woodworking, metal fabricating, glass blowing that would get these quote unquote type A personalities in the door. And then once they're in the door and they realize that, it becomes a creative process thing that they are really, oh, hey, I am an artist. I, I can do this. And it blows their mind. It's one of the best things to, every time I do that, when they get that moment, when they're like, oh, I created something. It's pretty satisfying. I have always been a believer that, you know, doing things like painting, music, these types of things are also therapies and they are very helpful to people. You know, they give them an outlet where they can express themselves in different ways. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it, though, because glass blowing it is like an art, but it is completely different. And it is a great fit for those, let's just say the tough guys, right? Who right. are like, oh, I can't do that, but man, I don't mind. I'll do this if I can just sit there and sweat while I'm doing it, right? Absolutely. And then it's uh, great, too, because you have a lot of really phenomenal female glass blowers, too. And you get some of these guys that come in. And they see like this little five foot two, very unassuming woman. And she's just walking around like a dynamo in the glass studio. And she's carrying like 30 pounds of glass on the end of a steel pipe. And she's just handling it. You know, these guys are like, whoa, like and it just completely resets, right? You know, that was part and parcel of the design of this program from Operation Art of Valor was to get folks in the door, to get them the whole arms crossed, hat on, sunglasses on, you know, kind of like, let me see what this is all about, to laughing and joking and collaborating. And then the biggest overall piece or the partnership with the Morian Art Center and this program is to connect communities. So you've got your military veteran community, you've got your art civilian community over here that these two don't necessarily on any given day would be maybe in the same room or having any sort of what I would call polite conversation. They would normally be kind of fundamentally diaposed. They just don't really get each other. And through this process, and the ultimate goal is to, instead of it being all these different or disparate communities, it's just a community, right? So we've learned that veterans and military folks don't necessarily have a lock on trauma, right? Not to marginalize, you know, the things that we have or the experiences that we've had in combat or anything like that. It doesn't mean that these folks don't also have trauma, you know, from growing up or, or whatever. And it all processes in the brain the same way. So trauma is trauma, right? It's just the way that you got it's different. So this ends up allowing these folks to have what I call campfire conversations because of the glass, because it's hot and it's 2,100 degrees and it's very focusing and very centering and grounding that all that other stuff kind of goes away. All the posturing goes away. All of the bravado goes away and they just end up having conversations. And, and that to me is, I think, one of the best parts of the program. It just sounds absolutely amazing. And your interaction with the veteran community is something that I completely agree with. And I feel it's, you know, so important. And there are so many different aspects of things. And sometimes people only think of, you know, transitioning and they're like, oh, well, it's the resume. I help people with LinkedIn. There's just all these different components. 
but it's really about communication and networking and finding those resources out there like you're talking about, you know, finding that outlet. And with people like yourself and me doing that, I think it definitely is helpful for everybody that is transitioning to actually do it easier and for their families too, you know, the spouses to get them plugged into something that just makes it just a smooth transition and helps them with any issues that they might have. So I definitely salute you for what you have started here. I think it's great. I have to say though, I think you said 2,100 degrees. Was that right? That's accurate. Yeah. So is this one of those things where, you know, people might come in to check it out, as you say, and do most people stay or does a lot of people walk out? I mean, it sounds incredibly dangerous, is it? I think it's only dangerous if you don't understand the process. And so we do, you know, it's a very incremental steps. So the first time that someone comes in there, they aren't necessarily going to pull multiple gathers of glass out of the furnace and they're going to have, you know, this large, large piece that's going to be heavy and it's going to be radiating a significant amount of heat. You know, one of the first things that we have them do is literally just take one of our tools, one of the pipes and just get a little bit of glass out of the furnace. So they get exposed to that heat coming out and it's small and they can make the mistakes and they can do it safely. Um, and we ensure we have like a, no more than like a one to three student to instructor ratio. So they can be very controlled manner. Teamwork ends up being just a very natural portion of this. So they end up helping grab tools and they do this and they do all that while they've got the instructor kind of watching and helping out. So while it does, I think at its face, maybe seem like it potentially is dangerous. The design of the program and the incremental process in which we teach them it ends up just being a process just like we do exercise planning or, or exercise execution in the military. Or you do a process on how to take apart a 240 machine gun and then put it back together. There's a process, right? So we instill that same process in the glass blowing studio when we do projects. And you see the military folks just naturally gravitate towards that structured process. But actually, is another component that ends up disarming them as well. It feels very natural fit. You got veterans around you. You're doing a process. You got a common mission. You're trying to make this thing. Then you have the supporting and supported. So it ends up being a very similar process to what military folks do when they're in the service. Gotcha. So what exactly is the mission of Operation Art of Valor? How do you define that? The mission is very simple. It's a couple of things. So the the biggest thing is it it provides a creative outlet, a no-cost creative outlet to veterans and military to include their spouses, to be able to find their positive creative outlet. And then it also is to connect communities. So like we talked about, the civilians and the military folks and We don't want there to be the haves and the have-nots or like the people that haven't served and the people that have. So it's putting them in a position where they've got a common ground and they can have a conversation. Civilians realize, hey, military people aren't all these terrible, crazy, not everyone is, you know, all these things. And then military folks realize, hey, civilians are humans. They do actually have thoughts and needs and wants. And we have some commonality, right? So trying to get back to that, well, you can disagree, but you don't have to hate. So that's, you know, kind of the ultimate goal, right? Discourse. We have some very interesting conversations in the hot shop that you would think would normally be pretty inflammatory conversations that end up being very tempered and very debate-like just because of their, we're on common ground. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, in that kind of environment, I think it's really just good for people to really kind of get to know each other and work together as a team. And if veterans can do that with civilians, that's just even a, a greater step for them becoming a part of community. And that's really, I think, what helps make all veterans and spouses successful is actually being a part of the community and, you know, interacting and, and then becoming successful. Right. Because that was the biggest thing for me when I transitioned out is I felt like I didn't have a home, right? I didn't belong anywhere. And this gives them a place where they feel like they belong. And the kind of interesting thing too is not only do you get that creative outlet piece and you get the communication piece, but cognitively and physically, this is a very worthwhile program for folks that have traumatic brain injury or if they have any sort of physical issue. We've got amputees that come in and do the program. We definitely make it adaptive for any sort of handicap that may be there. We've got folks that have had strokes that come in and they're in there with their medical attendant and they're working whatever they can work. 
but it ends up creating better neural pathways by learning something new, right? So hands and head, you know, they learn new things. So the turning of the pipe and the using of the tools and all of those processes that you're relearning help end up being a cognitive improvement also. And we partnered with University of South Florida for a year to do an efficacy study of our program. And they actually came in and proved what we thought we knew, but it was nice to actually get a full study done and show that it actually does work. And through everything that you're doing with Operation Art of Valor, you definitely have to be making a difference because didn't you just recently have a special guest that came by and looked into what you guys are doing? Yeah, that's funny. So rewind back to about a year ago when I was a veteran advisor of the Florida Culture Affairs Division for that Creative Arts Therapy Symposium that we did here in Tampa. Our keynote speaker was the second lady of the United States, Mrs. Karen Pence. One of her second lady initiatives is called Healing with the Heart she's a by design dyed in the wool art teacher. She's actually a very accomplished watercolor artist in her own right. And literally the first initiative she decided to do was to help create awareness for creative arts therapy, not just for military and veterans, but, you know, underserved youth, youth at risk, homeless people, like all that kind of stuff. So it's across the board, but one of her largest pillars in her program is the veteran community. So we spoke at that symposium. I discussed our program, invited her, obviously, whenever she would like to come down, never thinking necessarily that anything was going to come of it. I've stayed in touch with her office, helping kind of advise programs that they should look at, advice from a veteran type thing. And then last week, I got a phone call from her policy director saying, hey, Mrs. Pence wants to come down and see your program. So matter of fact, I think it was just two days ago, we had her in the hot shop for, ended up being almost two hours. Got her to try glass blowing, sit at the bench and make a flower. We did a couple of demos for her. And then we had several of our participants and their spouses. We sat down for about an hour and a half roundtable to discuss the impact of the program that the veterans have had so they could discuss it. And then what her thoughts were on the program. So it was amazing. That is amazing. And to get that kind of attention means you're doing something right. When you were sitting there with Karen Pence and talking about things at the round table, what kind of things came out of that discussion as far as how it's helping veterans and the results that you're seeing? So it's just funny. It was really interesting. I hadn't really heard their side of it yet. And, you know, we talk, we don't really talk in depth like that because we're not a therapeutic program. So I don't try to do therapy at the program. I'm not a therapist. But since we are a community-based partner with the James A. Haley Veteran Affairs Hospital here, the creative arts therapist that's there refers patients to come over. So she does her therapy side with them. They come here for their kind of creative positive outlet, and they go back, and then she builds on that, you know, every week when they're there for a 13-week program called PrEP. So they get to come to us no cost every Sunday for 13 weeks, and they go from not understanding what glass blowing is to, you know, making paperweights and making cups and making things like that. And then it just ends up being phenomenal. So to, to sit and actually listen to them talk to Mrs. Pence about what it actually provides them was extremely humbling because I heard answers from these veterans, these rough and tough kind of quiet folks that talk about, you know, I never thought I could be an artist or I never thought I would have the confidence to do something creative to, I look forward to this more than anything. It allows me to pop the top on my stress and it all just kind of escapes kind of thing. And then I'm good for my next week. The spouse is saying that, you know, my husband's been more engaging at home. He hasn't been as angry, hasn't been as frustrated, you know, all of those kinds of things. It's not the silver bullet, right? I think it's a complementary modality to their traditional therapies, right? So they get that process and those programs done at the VA and they plug this component in that gives them a real nice way to have a positive outlet. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it is unique though. So that's the thing, you know, there are so many programs out there for painting or music or learn how to play an instrument or whatever, but I definitely would say you have a little bit of a niche with this one because a program to learn how to get in there and to face the heat and to, right. to make something out of glass is just pretty amazing. And I've seen some of the videos and stuff that you guys have been doing and the work you guys do and like faces and masks that yep. you guys make there in the hot shop. And it's all pretty incredible. So very impressive. 
Well, thanks. So actually the masks that we make, if I remember, you know, when I was talking earlier about one of the first projects you do at NICO is the mask making exercise, right? So creative arts therapist gives you a mask blank and there's all kinds of materials. And then you basically no direction. You put whatever you want on that. It's a very impactful exercise. And it was for me. So I actually got one of those blanks. We do sand castings of that actual blank. And then, so we'll pour the veterans can make whatever design they want to in the mold, just like we do the masks. And we end up pouring these glass masks and they end up being, I think, very impactful for the veterans as well. That's very cool. So the things that you guys make, is it something that you make it, you take it home with you and you keep it forever? Or do some people make things and leave it there to be an example for others? Yes, that's a great question, actually, Pete. So we do a couple of things, right? So if they want to keep their personal pieces, they absolutely can. We do personal pieces. We do instruction, personal pieces, and we make collaborative team pieces as well. Like these very larger like you had mentioned, like some of those face totems and we make these really big bell jars with the, the faces on them and things like that. And we actually did in November during Veterans Day and then in December, get our first military and veteran art exhibition at the gallery that's at the Morgan. So we had for two months veteran art on display and glass had portraiture of all the glass artists in there. And it was actually, it was a really big event. It was the first one we did. And they actually sold some pieces in the exhibition too, you know, by design. They had several pieces got sold. That was another layer of pride that they hadn't really expected. Like, oh, somebody actually it kind of validated them, right? So I really like this. I really like what I'm doing. Somebody else actually likes it too because they actually bought my piece. So we're moving into that phase now. Is like we're going to do some production stuff. Like we made some red, white, and blue flowers for Mrs. Pence. The first one we made, all of us kind of looked at each other. We're like, oh, yeah, this is the symbolic Art of Valor piece. Like this red, white, and blue flower is going to be our fundraising piece. So we're going to add some production days into our program where that day we all just make these flowers. And so then we're going to fundraise through those and then those monies will come back into the program. That is a very awesome, great idea. You know, when it comes down to it, do you feel like your military experience has kind of helped you survive in the civilian world? Sure. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's defined who I am, you know, whether it's the best, worst thing I've ever done or the worst, best thing I've ever done. I mean, it's my identity. Well, it's my identity as a military person for 24 years. But the good thing that all of this has helped me realize, and it's things I tell other veterans, military folks too, is that it's a comma, not a period conversation. So I was in the Marine Corps for 24 years, comma, and now I blah, 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 blah. Not I was a Marine period. Cause that's where people I think get hung up a lot of times, Pete, is their military service ends up being their identity. And if they end up getting injured or something like that, for whatever reason, if their dance card doesn't get punched, you know, the way they wanted to get punched and they didn't leave on their own terms, it ends up being really disruptive to them. And it ends up feeling like they didn't do exactly what they wanted to do. So trying to help through all of this them to understand that that's a common out of period conversation. And then you have so much more to offer after service because it has shaped you, but it isn't, it's what you did. It's not what you are. At least that's how I personally feel. And then you find out there's so much more life has to offer after that doesn't have necessarily anything to do with the military. But your skills, your determination, your ability to work with anybody, try to find common denominators, that's absolutely, for me, all came from the military. I wouldn't be that way if it wasn't for it. It sounds like the way you describe that, your own journey on that, that you've come through it okay and that you really do fit in and you're making a big impact on the community. So that's really awesome. But I would say, Chris, through that process, were there different challenges that you or your family faced in returning to civilian life? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't be where I am right now if it wasn't for my wife staying on top. We've been married for 20 years. She's been through every single one of my deployments. Two kids, a high school sophomore and a fourth grader. And I was miserable. I was angry all the time. I couldn't sleep, all of these kinds of things. And she's the one that pushed me into getting teen, you know, getting therapy. And she's always been the support agent. She has no problem me going and doing these programs or doing any of these things. And that family network 
has been a support base that's allowed me to be okay with moving forward and doing things and also talk about my story. You know, before I was embarrassed and I didn't want to talk about any of this stuff and I don't want to let anybody know there was anything wrong with me. And I think my outlook has matured from talking with my wife and from getting therapy and things like that to understand that if I don't tell people that there's something wrong with me, but I, I move forward with it, then no one's going to think that it's okay for them too. You know, like when I was active duty and I was a senior enlisted E9, you know, in the Marine Corps, when I came back from Afghanistan and I had guys in my platoon that were getting divorced and they were having problems and they were getting DUIs and all this kind of stuff. I brought them all together and said, Hey, I want you guys to know I'm getting therapy because I was suicidal at one point. I was severely depressed, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm getting therapy. I go every Tuesday. When you guys don't see me here, it's because I'm at therapy. And they were floored. And I had a ton of those guys to actually go and start seeking therapy after. So that's kind of what it's about, right? But it's been a long process for me. It's been like a five-year journey. I think probably to get to the point where I am now, like I'm happy and healthy. You know, it's never going to go away. It's still there, but I have a healthy way to deal with it. Yeah, you know, I have to say I'm actually uh, very proud of you for that one because being truthful and being transparent with other people is something that's kind of hard for people to do, actually. So you doing that and setting the example, and then you see the results. You see others are going now. They wouldn't have if they didn't know that somebody else was already doing it. Absolutely. And that was the biggest piece. With this program, Operation Art of Valor, you know, Chris, you're connecting with the community. You're trying to get other people involved. You want to let them know it's an outlet. How do you reach out? How do you let people know about the program? Yeah, so we are supported both at the state level and the national level through the Creative Forces program. So it's a national endowment of the arts grant funded program, which is how we even got started in the first place. So my state agency, we have the Florida Cultural Affairs Division, and they're all, they do art and music and all those kinds of things. So I got started with, matter of fact, when I went through NICO and I went through art therapy at NICO, it was because you know, Melissa Walker that was there as a creative arts therapist, her salary was grant funded through the NEA, you know, through the National Endowment of the Arts. So a lot of things I have to do now is create awareness and advocacy at the state, at the national and the congressional level of understanding that the National Endowment of the Arts just doesn't pay for museums. So they're paying for creative arts therapists to help the military and the DOD. Creative Forces, I think, has creative arts therapists and music therapists in about 15 Department of Defense locations. And the James A. Haley is actually the first VA hospital. It was a pilot program. And so we are the first community-based network provider for that program. So like earlier this year, I got asked to go up and I actually testified in front of the Congressional Appropriations Committee that oversees the budget for the National Endowment of the Arts. So I went up there with folks from America of the Arts, folks from the Creative Forces Program, and then I was kind of the veteran voice. We were advocating for the top line budget that they were looking for rather than a decrease. And it's actually the first time, I think, just found out like about a month ago, uh, it's about the first time in about five years it actually had an increase versus status quo. So whether I had anything to do with that, I at least played my part. So that's the part for me now that I've got to do. And then taking it to the next level, you know, I, I know what you're doing to help veterans and, you know, we know this program is helping, but what is the next step for Operation Art of Valor? It sounds like you have some plans of what to do next. I absolutely do. So there's program goals and there's personal goals, right? So from a program perspective, one of the reasons that I, I've tried to partner with Maureen as much as I did is because they're a multimodal creative arts education center. So they don't just do glass. So they do glass, they do clay, they do photography, they do just about every visual art, watercolor, oil painting, all of that. So my eventual goal for the program is there'll be Art of Valor classes available in all of those mediums. So when they go through the prep program at the VA or they self-refer from Bay Pines or something like that, which is another community-based hospital here for the VA, they can have a choice. Not everybody's going to want to do glass. And everybody wants to open a furnace and have 2,100 degrees of heat blasting at them. So, but maybe they'd come to do clay or they would come to do photography or they would do computer graphics or whatever. So that's the ultimate goal for the program. And then I just, so because, you know, I, I like to apparently be busy. I just got accepted into an MFA creative writing program uh, that I'm going to start in March so that I'll end up leaving that with a degree in creative writing and then also be able to teach creative writing too. 
So that's another component that I think is really necessary for folks that don't feel like they're creative in a, a visual arts perspective, but they would love to journal and they would love to write and they would love to make stories. So that's a component that I wanted to fill in. So I'm, again, you got one finger pointing this way, you got, you know, four pointing back at you. So I'm going to get that degree in writing so I can help teach folks how to write as well. And so about that, when you talk about creative writing, I mean, this is something that you are definitely vested in because published military nonfiction stories. Can you tell me about that? What have you published? Yeah. So it next goes right back to NICO, right? So there's a veteran nonprofit called the Veterans Writing Project. Um, it's a 501c3 nonprofit that's partially funded by the National Endowment of the Arts. They come through NICO and they give creative writing classes and prompts and things like that. So it started there. And I did a couple of short stories that got published in the Veteran Writings Project quarterly book that's called O Dark 30. Uh, I did a couple of those. I actually did a poem, which was interesting. <laughs> and then from that, it kind of sprang into a military nonfiction anthology. That one was, I was surprised that I got invited to do that. It was veteran and military writing on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It was called Retire the Colors. And so I did about a 4,000 word piece, nonfiction piece that was in a, a published book there as well. And um, one of my short stories actually got nominated for a Pushcart Prize, which is a literary short story award, a national literary short story award. Thing get it, but it's kind of neat to get nominated. So I absolutely, it's one of those things I didn't realize I was good at writing until you actually write, right? So, and, I'm, and I say I'm good at it, but I'm, I'm okay at it. So I obviously, from a personal perspective, want to continue that on, um, which is why I'm doing my degree as well. But I just think, really think that if I have the things that can be offered, somebody will find something they like, right? So if it's not glass blowing, then maybe it's writing. If it's not writing, maybe it's woodworking or if it's jewelry making or whatever. I just, if it's just something, you know, I, I literally had a guy sitting at the table telling the second lady and I had no idea. He said, this saved my life. He said, this program has saved my life. That's profound. I didn't realize that the program has the impact that it does like that. So I feel very responsible to make sure that I'm a good steward of these opportunities. So I don't want to squander that because that's very valuable to me. Yeah. I just hope that the things you're talking about and the plans that you have, that we do get to see your program grow because obviously it's helping people and there's just so much more that you have the potential to do. So I'm definitely rooting for you and the success of your program. Thanks. So Chris, for transitioning veterans or their spouses, what action items would you give them? Oh yeah, absolutely. So if you think that you're going to prepare an X amount of time for your transition, so your clothes that you're going to use, your companies you're going to target, the resume that you're going to do, and you think I'm going to do this in X amount of time, double it, double the amount of time that you think you need to prepare uh, for transition. I probably started networking, building my LinkedIn profile making sure I didn't have a boogeyman at going to get you a gmail.com email. I had a professional personal email address taking transition GPS or TAPS programs twice. So the first one's fire hose and the second one, you actually get something out of it. Involving your spouse in the transition process. If you are married, identifying things that you want to do is probably the hardest thing. And I struggle with that. And three years later, I'm still on my second job, probably looking for my third because it's just one of those things that you don't realize you spend 24 years doing one thing. You don't really know what you want to be when you grow up. I would say that's the biggest key is if you think you need X amount of time to prepare for transition, double that amount of time that you need. There's literally thousands of resources out there to help with transition. There's people like yourself that will help with LinkedIn profiles and resumes. And there's people that'll do mock interviews for you. You know, there's dozens of nonprofits that will help with that. Why wouldn't you take that free help? I'd say reach out and find those services that'll help set you up for success also. So Chris, I think people are going to be, you know, very interested in this. They might want to ask questions, find out more, see, you know, what else that they need to do to get involved with the program. 
So how can people find you if they want to reach out? I mean, should they go to a website? Should they email you? How do you like to be contacted? Yeah, so that's a great question. The easiest way to probably, if you have questions about the program, you have questions about Operation Art of Valor, is there is an Operation Art of Valor Facebook page. I think I sent you the link for that. So uh, if you just want to search Facebook for Operation Art of Valor, or you can go on the web and you can search for Morgan Art Center, uh, Operation Art of Valor. There's an informational and donation page that's there for that nonprofit also. It has a link in there to go ahead and provide uh, any donations that you might want to do. The, the nonprofit, the Maureen that we work with uh, for this program, you take about $70,000 a year out of hide to run this program. So through you know donations and direct funding and the state and federal grants that we do get, they still end up probably uh, footing about $70,000 a year for this program. So any help that we can get, it all goes directly back into the program. You know, they're a four-star nonprofit and charity navigator. They've been around for, like I said, 103 years. They literally put everything back into the community. So that'd be my recommendation. All right. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to post those links that you mentioned so that people can just click on it to get directly to some of those resources. And Chris, I wanted to say I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. I find it a little fascinating um, because you see things like glass blowing only on TV. You know, you're right in the middle of it. A little envious. I might like to come and check it out one of these days, but I'm more than welcome to. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're already volunteer basically every Sunday to go in there and do that. So you're definitely giving of your time and it's been a very much a pleasure in talking to you today. Well, Pete, I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of help me raise awareness. Um, Same thing, you know, same right back at you, you know, the time that you're spending on doing these podcasts and and the connections that you're doing on LinkedIn, which is how we got together was it was a mutual connection on LinkedIn. It all helps, right? So, and that's what we're trying to do. So I appreciate what you do as well. And you have an open invitation. Anytime you want to come down, I'm happy to get you on a bench. Awesome. I'll probably be taking you up on that. (laughs) Okay. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to keep coming back each week for more great episodes. If you want to talk about something you learned today, if you have questions, or if you would like to be a guest on our podcast, go to AmericanHeroesNetwork.com and click on Contact Us. Thank you for listening.